This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So it's really a bit more complicated. So these temperature checks were really effective during SARS-1 because uh, you just weren't that contagious until you started to express symptoms and that high fever was a significant symptom. It's been deployed for uh, um, COVID-19, but it does seem that there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers, a lot more asymptomatic carriers driving this. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast and this is your host Todd DeVoe speaking and this week we are well we're replaying a webinar that was hosted by Titan HST and the question was what will recovery look like after the COVID-19 crisis is over and the panel was made up of some great thinkers in the space of emergency management in the public health arena in global crisis management and our local contract emergency managers as well. So it was a, it was a good panel and the conversation was, was really great. We had participants um, ask questions. It was a professional and well-received conversation. Now on to the conversation. Welcome to what does recovery after COVID-19 look like? And I'm excited to have this, uh, the panel that we have together. Um, just come ground rules here. Uh, if you have questions, you can go ahead and raise your hand and ask questions if we, if we want to do it live. If you have, please use the Q&A um, at the bottom of your screen if you want to ask questions because it's easier for us to, to manage it down there. Uh, if you do it in the chat, it might get lost um, down there. So please use the question answer section. Um, remember, this is a lot of stuff that's going on here. Uh, if you disagree with something, that's that's fine and, and that's okay. Uh, but remember, if you're going to disagree with somebody, please make it professional and we will uh, uh, keep everything civil. So I do appreciate the civility of our group and we are a collaborative organization or, or business, I suppose, as emergency managers. And so I think it's important for us to stay collaborative during this time as well. So welcome everybody to Titan HST's April webinar, Recovery After COVID-19. Uh, you may have seen or read Eric McNulty's book and his team from Harvard's, the uh, NPLI, called You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And over the last few months, or for you weeks, we have been tested and some of us have answered the call. And so we're here today to discuss what it's going to look like as we lead uh, through the recovery of COVID-19 and what that transition out of the stay at home and the new normal uh, will look like. So today I'm joined by three of the leading thinkers in the, in the field of emergency management. I have uh, Dr. Rodrigo Neto Gomez, who has his PhD in geopolitics from the French Institute of Geopolitics of the University of Paris. And he also holds, holds a JD from the State University of San Luis Poesto, is that how you say it, Rodrigo, in Mexico. He is currently... Yeah. 
<laughs> he is currently a research professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And Rodrigo is also one of the lead instructors at FEMA's EMI in Emmitsburg. As a futurist, as a geostatist, he also speaks four foreign languages. And as you can tell, I am struggling with mastering one. And I'm going to kill Jeff's last name. We just talked about that. So Jeff's... Um, Lich, sorry, Jeff, and I do apologize, um, is the Deputy Director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, and uh, his areas of expertise include public health, the preparedness, community resilience, and integration of private and public sectors. And Jeff, outside of being uh, a contributor to The Hill, uh, he also has been seen on TV of late talking about what's going on in New York and around the world uh, with the COVID response and the crisis. He's also just finished his book uh and I've, i was honored to be able to read a uh a, a pre-copy of this right here and um it's called the rethinking readiness a brief guide to 21st century mega disasters from columbia university press and it's going to be available um on amazon coming up here in june if you are a kindle person you actually have first crack at the book uh, and uh it's exciting for for jeff for his first book and congratulations to him on that and yes, it's going to be my nomination this year uh, to be on the 2020 top 10 books that belong on an emergency manager's bookshelf awards uh, from, from EM Weekly. So um, Jeff also holds a master's degree from public health from UMass Amherst and public policy and management and a master's in business administration from Quinnipiac University, which is not just a place that does polls, but they also have a full university that does some really good education over there as well. Kyle McPhee is the current director of preparedness programs for Haggerty Consulting. He is an experienced uh, emergency management professional who has worked with international, national, and regional, state, and local, and private sector organizations uh, in, in EM and Homeland Security, business continuity, and public health preparedness. His expertise includes project management, planning, facilitation, evaluation related to various topics that include uh, uh, catastrophic incidents, mission ready packages, uh, mass care and evacuation. Uh, Kyle holds a master's degree in biosecurity and disaster preparedness from St. Louis University. And I am your host, Todd DeVoe, Director of Emergency Management at Titan HST. In addition, I teach at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm the host of the EM Weekly Show. So everybody, welcome to um, this, uh, this show. Starting off, and kind of the way I see us doing this here, we're just going to do roundtable first. Um, I want to start with Rodrigo, since he kind of has a pulse um, internationally as well, and, and his family in other parts of the world. Um, how do you see the impact of, of COVID here and how do you see us moving forward into doing international travel and what's that going to look like, do you think, in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I wish I knew the answer because I have a four-month-old baby that hasn't been able to meet uh, uh, her grandparents because we were stopped right at the beginning uh, of, of COVID-19. She was born in November and by November, as we know, there was already good intelligence. So I stopped my parents and my in-laws from coming to visit. Um, so uh, I don't know, but it's it's one of those cases in which you cannot hold the non-pharmaceutical interventions for too long. Non-pharma interventions are all the things that we're doing right now. Uh, physical separation, social distancing, holding travel, closing uh, recreational parks, etc. And there is a point in which the pressure will be too big for that to continue. And we're seeing uh, airlines already uh, considering alternatives, right? I believe all of the 
major airlines in the United States right now are getting rid of the middle seat and not getting rid of it, but not, not booking people in the middle seat for the time being, uh, this is going to be not a problem because there are so few travelers that's not an issue as traffic uh, increases, as ridership on other mediums increases, that might actually be a problem. So my first response to what you just said is that it'll be more complicated and more expensive, right? So it'll be very hard for airlines to continue to offer the $1,000 tickets to Europe uh, when they suddenly have lost a third, uh, even when they are able to book the plane full, right? We'll see this, by the way, with other businesses, right? There, there is no path to reopening that doesn't, for the time being, uh, implies a, a degraded version of whatever your business used to be before. Uh, some nations are reopening to travel little by little, uh, I think that a lot of this has to do with what I would like to talk later about, which is the importance of moving rapidly to effective, abundant, constant testing. I think that depending on the types of innovations that we might see, might see we'll see in the next few months with rapid testing, uh, we might see a reopening of airline traffic. If I know that every passenger is being tested before jumping to the plane, I might feel a lot more comfortable as a nation state allowing that plane to deboard uh, in my country and go through customs. If on the other side, we see a, a increase in the amount of imported COVID-19 cases for places that have already uh, controlled uh, their, 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 their uh, uh, RO factor, uh, you might see a reclosing of the border. So a lot of this will depend on uh, our capacity to implement rapid testing to a scale that we've never seen before. So Jeff, you, you know, being in New York City, are seeing the brunt of, of this, um, the COVID response, the COVID issues that are going on. And, and uh, um, I know it's pretty hard for, for everybody over in that area, and especially watching some of the videos and some of the stuff that comes in. I, I too have family um, in, in New York, so I'm, I'm very aware of what's going on in that area. I think it's interesting to see some of the changes that happened in Singapore very quickly where we were being scanned to go into restaurants um, and, and stuff. Do you, can you foresee something like that happening? I mean, with the, with the tens of millions of people that live in um, New York and visit uh, throughout the time, do you see New York going to somewhere to where it's like Singapore for doing um, temperature checks uh, before they go into buildings? I'm not sure. So it's really, a bit more complicated. So these temperature checks were really effective during SARS-1 because uh, it, it, you just weren't that contagious until you started to express symptoms and that high fever was a significant symptom. It, it's been deployed for uh, um, COVID-19, but it does seem that there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers, a lot more mm -hmm. asymptomatic carriers driving this. So those things can be helpful. And um, obviously, if you're coughing, if you're sick, you're more, more likely to be shedding more of the virus, but we do see a lot of transmission being driven by, by most likely asymptomatic carriers, um, both in some of the studies coming out and in some of the models, just trying to explain the transmission retrospectively. Um, with all that being said, I think there's a few things that really need to happen. One is that the, uh, the transmission rate drops down to a level where it's not so widespread in community transmission. Um, it's just starting to do that in New York, uh, but it's really on the up, uh, upward trend in a lot of different parts of the country. Um, 
But in addition to that, you need the ability to rapidly test people to identify who's sick and then to rapidly do the contact tracing. So we're still sort of playing catch up nationally in terms of getting enough testing deployed and then building up an army of contact tracers. I think California is looking to hire as many as 10,000. Massachusetts is working with partners in health to bring on a thousand. Um, so, I mean, these are huge numbers of folks to be able to deploy this. And even with that in place, we still will need some sort of social distancing. If we're going to open up the barbershop, can you have, <clears throat> excuse me, that many people <clears throat> inside like you used to? Um, should you be wearing a mask along with your barber? So I think, I think this return to normal um, for all intents and purposes uh, if we define normal as what it was three or four months ago, um, we're probably a good year, year and a half off from that. What we'll mo more likely see is layering in and retracting different kinds of um, social distancing, sort of putting the, you know, throttling forward and backwards based on what we're seeing. Um, if we start to see cases creep up, we may have to start restricting movements again as it's being relaxed. Um, if we see it down and and we we're, we'll play around with the protocols, uh, capacity restrictions, things like that to try and open up different parts of the economy. Some states are trying to open up and just full on open up. I, I think it's too soon for that. I think they're gonna regret that. Um, and I also think that, you know, we can have the desire to reopen the economy, but um, you know, you can have all the flights that you want and allow as many flights as you want. People still have to buy tickets and wanna get on the plane and go somewhere. So until this larger um, epidemiological set of issues is more fully addressed. Um, so we're really looking at, at long-term things to put in place to help control the spread and balance opening the economy while also reducing infection until uh, hopefully we see some strong developments on the therapeutic side in terms of treatments, as well as on the vaccine side, which uh, we've gotten some good news this week on that front, seeing some things in early trials um, performing well, um, but still even under the best of scenarios, a long way off from that. Yeah, and I want to kind of circle back on on some of those trials and some of the things that's going on with the vaccine, um, you know, just to, to, to kind of, but we'll get to that in a second. I do have one kind of general question on that uh, as far as getting back to the normal, and I put those in air quotes. Um, I, I was wondering, and I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, the idea of are we going to do like, you know, like right now, if I want to go to say, you know, it's a cheesecake factory or whatever, which is one of the busy, you know, um, restaurants and you show up and it's like, Oh, there's a 35 minute wait. And you stand in this big queue with a whole bunch of people. Um, do you see something on the lines of where you'd have to do, you know, use like table mates app and sign up for a thing and get your time to show up to the place to, to eat instead of signing in that big queue? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, reducing capacity, requiring advanced reservations, uh, if you're waiting outside, you're waiting with lines six feet apart, like you're seeing with some of the, um, I went to the butcher in town that we have in uh, the town that I'm in here. Um, and, uh, you know, they were reducing the number of people allowed inside. And so folks were waiting outside sort of in longer with distance between them in line. So I think that this very much is, uh, you know, we're going to feel out exactly how to implement this. Um, but I think that we'll uh, um, absolutely be seeing this uh, for uh, many, many months to come, um, possibly years uh, as this sort of gets uh, gets sorted through. There was a question in the Q&A sort of uh, along the lines of this that we're seeing it sort of emerge during the winter. Um, in this hemisphere, what will it be? Uh, will we see it more activity in the Southern hemisphere? Pandemics are, are, are the, the short answer is we don't know um, uh, with this. And so that's a big question. Are we gonna get a summer reprieve up here? Are we gonna see a seasonality to this? Because that could greatly influence 
um, being able to open things up over the summer, but maybe having to reinstitute some of these restrictions in the fall uh, mm -hmm. when we tend to see respiratory illnesses and the coronaviruses that normally circulate among the population, they're more active uh, in cold and flu season. Um, so uh, it's possible that it does fall into that seasonality um, but pandemics, especially in the initial phases with so many people unexposed, don't always slip into that. So, um, so there's a chance, but uh, there's just a lot that's unknown right now. I would suspect at some point we do start to see a seasonality fall into place and it tends to transmit similar that we see with other respiratory illnesses and coronaviruses. Whether that happens this summer and winter down there um, or kind of runs on its own course until we get some degree of herd immunity um, remains to be seen. And it's a very big, very important open question. Kyle, this is to you. And this is unprecedented. This is the first time in the history of our nation where every single state and territory has been had a declaration of disaster, federal disaster declared uh, for them at the same time. That being said, the ability to uh, facilitate emergency operations centers and some management teams, um, uh, help out at different hospitals um, across the country has really been diminished. We do not have the ability to call for, for well, we could call for it, but it's fulfilling the mutual aid requests um, are very, very hard uh, to, to come. Um, and as a consulting company, I know that you guys were, were doing a great job of, of trying to fulfill those, those uh, requests as well. Do you see a fundamental shift in how we in the field of emergency management take a look at what mutual aid is and how we request additional help for our IMTs and, and EOCs? Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for the invitation today. I think one of the interesting things about this response is it's highlighted the dependence on the private sector. And this is across a variety of services and products. So things like medical supplies and groceries, also the provision of services, as you mentioned, you know, everything from quarantine support to surging EOC operations. We've all seen in the past few weeks and months that this has benefited from close coordination with the private sector. And I think specifically in this incident, we saw that a lot of the assumptions we made uh, pertaining to mutual aid broke down due to the volume of the support that was required. Uh, this has really uh, highlighted the unique role that public-private partnerships can play. Things like pre-event contracts, having relationships with vendors in place. This is going to be the leading edge going forward. And I think we headed down this road pre-COVID. Uh, so this is a trend that was intact but it's being greatly accelerated by what we're seeing in this unprecedented incident. I think uh, looking at things like the lifelines, the community lifelines, the ESF-14 rewrite, uh, all of this is, is pointing us in the, the right direction, but I think what's going to happen as a result of coronavirus is it's going to move uh, from an item on the list to the top of the list for a number of communities uh, nationwide. So, Rodrigo, this is this is gonna go for you first, and we can kind of kind of go around the board here for a minute. And it's back to the education. So, what does the future of of not just higher education, which was the question came in, is what the future of higher education is? But how do you see the future of school in general, K through twelve, higher education? Is this something that we're gonna move to more online stuff, or are we gonna have the you know, like I, I wrote a piece talking about the fact that 
your undergrad, your typical undergrad at your larger universities, you have 200 freshmen jammed into a, a math class sitting in this, you know, non air conditioned, very poor circulation room on top of each other. Uh, are we going to see those lecture hall style teaching lessons again, or are we going to small university, you know, 20 kids in a classroom type stuff? What, what do you think you see? So this actually connects very nicely to the to the to the answer that Jeffrey gave you before about the use of apps to uh, 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 pre pre book your appointment. Uh, the entrepreneurs are the people who see the the problems of today and they understand they are the markets of tomorrow, right? So every time that there is to, to paraphrase Raham Emanuel, right? Every, don't let a crisis go to waste. Um, we were already in, uh, in, in, in a time in which higher ed, which is the question how it came originally, uh, was already being rethought due to many factors, including the skyrocketing prices, uh, tuition, and the lack of um, understanding. So, so already here we see an opportunity, right? I, I am very careful um, to all of those who say, well, this is going to change everything and we're never going to go back. I don't know, right? Because humanity is really bad at predicting the future, right, and, and anticipating market changes. What I would say is that suddenly people are uh, testing things that they would have not regularly tested, right? A lot of people who were not used to homeschooling, now they are forced into homeschooling, and some people might hate it, and some people might not, right? Some people might discover that this actually fits their lifestyle and with the proper support, uh, uh, and that support is a market for entrepreneurs, both in the public sectors to create better uh, homeschooling or online education modes, uh, but also in the higher education. I would say one thing, what we've seen right now for the Harvards and the Stanfords and the Purdue's and the Browns is not real online education, right? This is remote emergency teaching, right? Which is you take whatever you can, it's a continuity of approach, you scramble, you get into Zoom, it sucks, it's bad, but it's better than nothing and you try to make lemonade with it. Some others have been very good at doing online education. I don't know if any of our viewers has a kid or themselves learning language with Duolingo. Duolingo teaches languages more and more effectively according to standardized testing than many other traditional learning education platforms. Um, that's online education. It's built from the ground up. It costs a lot of money. It requires developers. It requires a, a skill set that is not the same one that you would associate with your traditional educational model. I do think that this is opening new opportunities, new avenues for creators. I read recently that the Masterclass, this beautiful website where stars teach you from how to cook barbecue to how to write fictional novels, uh, has increased their user base ten tenfold. Right, that they had a 10x increase in users. Um, but at the same time, places like Blue Apron, right, the, 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 the website that you don't necessarily associate with education, but nevertheless, what they do is they make you a chef with training wheels, right? They send everything pre-portioned. Uh, pre they give you very clear instructions. They also are great. So there is an avid need for people to create platforms where they can learn and some people will take advantage. We are very underserved, that I would say. The, 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 the products that are available from the big Ivy League universities to the K-12 systems are subpar. There is lack of quality because this is an emergency and we are scrambling to do it. So I do think that the potential here for innovators to come up with new solutions is higher. 
And uh, who knows? Yeah, I think that the mix between homeschooling and, and, and public schooling or, or, or presential or, or, or face-to-face schooling is going to change. Um, are we going to bring schools back online, as, as Jeffrey was saying, tomorrow? No, we're not, right? We're considering either having a morning and an afternoon shift, a limited, school, limited students. So the experience is going to be degraded for a while, even in that regard. Although I don't know how you keep... Uh, 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 eight-year-olds from bumping into each other. And so I, I, I think that social separation in the school environment is fairly naive as a proposition. Yes. China is, treat, is, is, is trying it right now. Uh, so I, I think that we will see an increase uh, in velocity, in the kind of innovations that will happen. And there might be an opportunity for electronic arts or in the Netflix of the world to disrupt the field in ways that maybe the traditional brick and mortar universities are struggling with. I don't know. Jeffrey, this is for you. Um, Jim Wilson, I don't know if you can read the, the question in the Q&A. Uh, it's kind of long, but I'll try to paraphrase as best I can. And so Jim kind of goes, says, you know, the country lacks the universal testing process um, um, at scale. Uh, and, and also, who's trusting the, the, the testing process? I know that we, there were some issues with some of the tests that came out. Even the CDC was having some problems with some of the early testing. Um, and it talks about he talks about the fact that the country doesn't have personnel again for for uh at scale uh, contract tra- uh, tracing and um they're indicated the public compliance is slipping um despite proposed plans um so the question there I, I i'm guessing is all those things that we talk about doing and you kind of brought up um what are the i mean there's some challenges for implementation on this um how do you foresee us, the, the collective us, the United States, if you will, or the world for that matter, um, implementing some of these ideas that we have uh, to be able to to really monitor what's going on and to, to truly test uh, what's going on with, with COVID. Um, ultimately, uh, sloppily um, and uh, with some spots that are going to do better than others uh, because they have more resources than others and are better organized at doing it than others. Um, I think that all those points are exactly right. These challenges in terms of the, the shortage of testing, when we look back at this a generation from now, I think the single greatest failure of the response of the United States is going to be the lack of testing and the delays in getting testing. Now we're at a point where we, it's not that we don't have enough tests. There's actually an abundance of tests now, um, at least diagnostic tests. I want to separate that from the serology tests, which are a different animal um, that have been approved by the FDA, uh, including some very um, rapid tests that can provide results in 15 minutes. But getting that to scale, getting the reagents and and getting the equipment to actually be able to test, you know, uh, 350 million people and not one, but several times to look for infection, to look for reinfection, um, even to test a few million people is still lagging far, far behind. Um, And I I think that, and in terms of compliance, that's always a challenge with public health. Public health actually has very, very strong authorities, at least at the state and local level, for um, instituting quarantine orders. In some cases, uh, of the public health official authorities actually exceed that of the governor who appoints them. Um, If you think about it, these constitutions, these state constitutions were written in the time of smallpox and yellow fever. Um, The public health officer was just endowed with that. But then the question is, who's going to enforce it, right? Public health on paper has a lot of authority, but in practice really absolutely relies on public confidence and public participation in these policies. Um, And this is where um, I'm going to vary a little bit here um, and probably offend some folks, but this is where national leadership is very, very important. 
I actually fully believe in FEMA's mantra of, you know, um, uh, federally supported, state managed, locally executed, except for pandemics. Um, and pandemics are so far reaching, they require nationalization of so many different things because they're so pervasive. Otherwise, you have 50 states competing against each other to get the same set of ventilators. You have 50 states competing against each other to purchase tests and personal protective equipment. You have in inconsistent messaging because you have different things being done under different circumstances. And I think that these things uh, erode public confidence. They erode public trust. And at the end of the day, a lot of, in the absence of pharma, even with pharmaceuticals, but at the end of the day, the most important thing that public health can say is, this is what you need to do. You got to trust us on this. And if there isn't trust and there aren't materials, there's not a whole lot left to, uh, to fight this pandemic with. And it means that it's going to stretch out longer. And the more that it stretches out longer, the more severe the outcomes, the longer it's going to take to get it under control and really have that balance between economic activity and public safety uh, while they, uh, uh, an end game, an exit strategy is ultimately identified, which will probably most likely be in the form of a vaccine. Um, but it remains to be seen. I want to ask uh, Kyle a question, and I want to come back just so that all three of us or four of us can discuss this on the idea of, of public trust. But um, Julie asked, do you, um, Kyle, do you anticipate um, any legislative agenda um, for building codes in regards to maximum occupancies and minimum clearance of the public space? I know it's kind of your, you, you kind of have a little bit of expertise in that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it speaks to the idea of this being a uh, nonlinear disaster and that we're used to things moving forward in a very incremental fashion and you manage response, then recovery and so on. Uh, we are dealing, as the other speakers have mentioned, with a dynamic environment. And there's many models that are looking at second wave or future waves in the future. And so there are different strategies that need to be pursued as we imagine what extended response looks like. And I think that the, the recommendation or the question speaks to one of those strategies, but each community is in the process of evaluating what works best uh, currently on an ongoing basis. And in many cases, they're revising that guidance daily. Uh, what we've seen across the nation is that as individuals are transitioning from the immediate life safety needs to thinking from a community perspective about extended response, there's four quadrants of ongoing activity. There is the public health element, which will include surveillance and testing, contact tracing. There is reinforcing or ensuring that the medical infrastructure is robust and prepared for any future outbreaks. This includes your personnel and supplies, but also things like revenue recovery. I have to remember many of these healthcare facilities are very dependent on outpatient procedures. And in many cases, those have been canceled for weeks, if not months. Uh, this creates a large vulnerability in the system. There's, of course, the more traditional emergency management operations. This includes things like coop planning, restoring consumer confidence, uh, building trust. Sounds like we're going to go there in just a moment. Uh, there are many different approaches to that. Limiting occupancy is one such uh, approach. And then the final leg, I would say, is economic recovery planning. We've had a number of closures. There are both direct and induced impacts of the event. And we need to realize that revenues are going to be down. Limiting occupancy of restaurants for a, a health benefit has an economic impact. And so sales tax and other fees are going to be impacted. Uh, it's an operational structure that has to be built for a marathon. And uh, the, the mitigation measure outlined is, is one strategy, but there are many. And it's a very careful balance between 
the health and safety of the community and the, and the economic well-being and livelihoods. Two things on, on, on that. Um, and I want to go into trust first. <clears throat> um, then we'll go into economics after that. So uh, on the trust, we, we, and again, the collective, we, when I say we, I'm, I'm talking about every person that's infected or involved in this it includes every resident and citizen um, that we have. Um, we have our leaders and specifically some of them have come out and, and made some questionable decisions uh, and orders, which really confused and also frustrated uh, the residents and of their cities. And uh, one specific uh, mayor, um, she put out a bunch of videos about staying at home and, and was, I think, probably doing the right thing with those videos. They were very, very entertaining and told people to stay home. But then she gets caught um, going out and getting her hair done. And her, she had a very flippant answer to the media when they asked her about this, basically saying that she's very important and she needs her hair done. And basically telling the residents of her city that, she's the better than they are. That's the, that's the, the attitude that kind of came out. Um, the, the governor of Michigan um, had some issues specifically um, of some of the orders that she gave out that seemed very draconian and um, so much so that they weren't allowing people to go to their um, second homes, to their summer homes, that they had to stay where they're at. Things like that, that really frustrated people. And I think that eroded some of the trust that we have. And now you're seeing protests across the country of open up again, um, whatever that tends to mean. How do we build trust back with the, the, the residents and the citizens um, of the United States to saying that what we're trying to do is not hurt you, uh, but help you? And, and how do we get through some of the mis-messaging that's going from the president saying things that are kind of odd um, down to the mayor of a small town. Whoever wants to take it. I'll I'll jump in first. We've been looking at this a lot. I I mean, I think in terms of those, you know, protesting to reopen the country, there's sort of two sides to that. There are some that are just lockstep with the politics and are going to do whatever, whatever the president tweets. And then there are others who are, um, and probably a much larger majority who are really struggling. I mean, we have over 30 million people unemployed right now. Um, since the start of this uh, um, pandemic, which really only started shutting things down about a month ago. This is unprecedented um, in modern times, and a lot of people are really hurting because of it. Um, It is, and um, I I don't agree that the cure is worse than the disease. I think that that drastically understates the risk of an unmitigated pandemic. But there is something to be said for the cost of the economic downturn, particularly on people who are most vulnerable to that. Hourly workers, all kinds of folks who have been disenfranchised and and they're hurting and they can't put food on the table. And we're seeing food pantries running out and not having enough while food is being wasted because supply chains have to adjust from restaurant to grocery to other things. So so I think that these are very, very real things that um, we we need to try to, um, although no one gets more frustrated with the politics than me, at the end of the day, uh, the, the individuals who are experiencing this are experiencing very real pressures on their lives and their livelihoods. Um, so with all that being said, and this is, this is honestly, this is the, the perpetual question with public health and public health responses. How do you cultivate trust when most of the time what you have to do in public health is restrict somebody's freedoms in order to keep them from either getting sick or getting somebody else sick? And this is the ultimate example of that. Um, so I think that there is, um, so one, just in terms of leadership, you can't be stupid. I mean, you can't say one thing and do another. It's just bad 
stuff. I mean, you just, I, I don't even, I mean, that's if take that as is the other is that um, though, is that, you know, there, there are, a colleague of mine at the University of Delaware, Joe Trainer, I remember telling me one time about how, you know, uh, as emergency managers, a lot of times what we try and do is we try and figure out what is the right combination of words to make somebody do what we want them to do. And that's actually a false premise. That's not the way to look at things. That what you that actually there is a range of human behaviors and there's a range of things that people are going to do. And so what you want to do is you actually want to steer them towards the best possible of those decisions that they're likely to take. Um, so to me, like, like everything is in a gray area here. We can, you know, I, I actually, you know, the, a, a number of states in the South are um, restricting drive-in church services, um, even if they put in measures to restrict social contact. This would be something as an epidemiologist, I'm like, oh, okay, well, it's less risk if they just don't do it. But at the same time, the spiritual connection that folks have, this sense of community may very well be one of the most important things to get us through this. Is there a way to balance that? Is there a way to balance the epidemiology with the spirituality and the, the sociology and the psychology of this disease? And so that's actually, and I, I thank you and I'm very humbled by the, by the praise for, uh, for my forthcoming book, but I think that that's really one of the key themes that, that we look at in the book, we've been looking at at our center is that, is that there is no single answer. It's, it's like trying to work a Rubik's cube. Everything you do on one side has impacts on the other three. And you need to know what those are and you need to balance those uh, to make sure that we're, we're promoting the best possible outcome that, that really does respond to the fears and the anxieties and the needs that households have. Um, because at a certain point, it's not going to be enough to say um, 2 million deaths um, after someone's stuck at home for so long and not working and not putting food on the table. Um, these abstract concepts um, don't always connect uh, if they're not linked to the reality of the individual and the emotions that they're going through. Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I would just build, build off of Jeff's comment. Uh, you know, I think after every significant disaster we've experienced in the past 20 years, let's say, you've seen this natural outpouring of altruism. People want to help. They want to get involved. They want to actively contribute to resolving the problem. And I think one of the things that's unique about this incident is that that avenue isn't readily available. And so perhaps there's that desire, but we haven't necessarily guided the action. I think you're starting to see some really in, uh, invaluable uh, means to engage the general public in addressing the issue and being part of the solution. For instance, we're seeing contact tracing volunteer groups stand up. We're seeing opportunities to get engaged with food banks and the distribution of food. I think that these are the right ways to meaningfully impact the whole community, contribute to that trust building. And I also think there's merit to Jeff's comment about recognizing that this may not be a V-shaped recovery. Uh, going into COVID, 53% of Americans lack any savings. And now we're in an environment where some of them have been without income for weeks to months. Uh, I think if you look at the data that's coming out of China, you know, they're two to three months. It's not a one for one comparison, but they're two to three months in front of us on this curve. And it's not business as usual. Uh, a lot of the data that's coming out shows that it's a slow recovery. And so, you know, it may be less of a V-shaped recovery and more of a U or an L these are going to have implications on the community. And I think emergency managers, we need to acknowledge this and, and how it translates to the services that we're providing. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's a minefield that you're 
that dragging us there, Todd, you know that, right? Because there's elements here that go beyond just the response, right? Even before COVID-19, America has experienced a level of political polarization, especially at the federal level, that we haven't seen in many years, right? So mm -hmm. many of these elements already were uh, pre-baked into the status of the state of, 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 of our current political environment. Why is that happening? Well, there's many reasons uh, that in this case are irrelevant because it is what it is. Uh, part of that leadership has to do with what is peculiar or special about Donald Trump as a leader at the federal level versus what would have been the response of a President Jeff Bush or President Clinton, right? And separating those things, it's gonna be important to know what was an issue regarding to the specific style of leadership of President Trump or the mayors and governors that you were mentioning or what was structural, what was something that was based on the systems uh, that were part of the response. And uh, I mean, non-pharmaceutical interventions are, are, are a self-defeating proposition, right? So, so the more you keep people away from each other, business closed, the more the pressure builds because the, le the impact of the pandemic becomes less evident because you are being successful, you're flattening the curve, right? The more you flatten the curve, the people start to ask, why are we doing that? We're all overreacting. Right? We've seen that the time and time again in emergency management and homeless security. The more you are successful at prevention, the more the pressure against prevention builds. Right? So um, the reality is that this is not a sustainable state for the economy. Right? And at, that, at one point, this becomes a risk management question, as Jeff was asking. Uh, just today, I was having a discussion because uh, with, with a bunch of local emergency managers here in California, because the state is deciding to close the beaches uh, uh, due to a bunch of photos that appear on the weekend uh, uh, with a lot of uh, uh, tourists and people having fun at the beach. Um, the, while the science is still not settled and most of the studies are not peer reviewed, what we know right now is the, uh, trans the, the transmission of COVID-19 in uh, outdoor environments is very limited so far. Uh, most of the beaches are not Santa Monica, right? Many areas in California actually have pristine, uh, wide beaches that people can go and maintain social separation and have fun. And part of this rule kind of makes the point that, well, okay, you can go and walk, but you cannot uh, bring a tent or sit. And now we're kind of to Jeffrey's point about enforcement, right? Now we're asking law enforcement to start enforce, enforcing uh, beach tent regulations, right? And putting pressure uh, against a measure that probably will have a fairly limited to zero return on public health outcomes, but will infuriate a lot of the sectors of the population that they were willing to support other measures, right? So uh, we're getting to a point where we'll have to balance the draconian nature of some of these rules versus the benefits that they provide and the negative externalities and consequences. It is risk management, a very weird one, a very complicated one with very strong social implications. But if we want to sustain public support, it has to be done in a way that people understand why it is doing. And we have to try to avoid the creation of counter movements uh, that emerge when people not see these measures are justified. Some of that movement might emerge as a, a irrational, a, a doctrinary, ideological movement, but many of these are fairly uh, 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 rational and they make sense, right? So we need to take that into consideration uh, and start bringing testing and, 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 and other mechanisms to uh, get to our new, uh, to a new normal. Right, the new normal. 
Um, I was just gonna, if you know, I just wanted to add in here too, and I, I certainly uh, agree with everything and appreciate all the insights that uh, that everyone's brought so far. Just one point that I want to make as well too is that we are in this impossible position by design. We knew there anyone who worked more than twenty minutes in public health preparedness knows that pandemics happen on a cyclical nature and that we're due. We knew how many ventilators would be needed based on an influenza pandemic, which is not all that different than the modeling for COVID. We knew the burn rate of N95s from SARS. There are GAO reports going back to 2005, looking at these shortfalls, identifying the weaknesses in the supply chain. Um, and the stockpiles were not invested in, the supply chains were not invested in, the testing was slow. Um, and we knew to get ahead of this. So, so until it got to the point where it was so widespread, I don't know where that balance is between opening up the economy and keeping measures in place and nobody knows. But right now we have zero options available to us because we have no ability to really in a meaningfully way identify and manage community-wide transmission until those supply chains are ramped up to reinforce the healthcare system, have testing and contact tracing um, so that we can manage transmission in the community as things start to open back up. So I think, you know, again, today we have to deal with what we have. We have to deal with the situation that we're in. But as someone who does a lot of policy work as well, too, I have to say that this is absolutely, you know, when they do the commissions afterwards and go back to, and it's not just, it's not a, it's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. This is a bipartisan failure to legislate the changes that need to be made and to implement the programs that needed to be made um, and uh, there, there ultimately does need to be a reckoning if we're going to not see this happen again, because there absolutely will be more pandemics. History tells us that as a fact. Absolutely. And that's why I just lectured that last night, a matter of fact, talking about that um, as, as public policy, we're looking at pandemic planning or any planning for that matter, whether it's earthquake or whatnot, um, as, a, as an insurance policy. And we're asking as emergency managers for our administration to pay for something that may or may not ever happen, something that we never really want to use. And, and, and so when they're taking a look at the, their budget, the finite budget that they have, um, whether they're going to put it into the public parks or if they're going to put it into uh, putting more information or more uh, money into uh, the planning and, and preparedness for this mystery disease that may or may never come, um, they put money into parks and we see this biting us right now. Um, there's a article that I read um, in the uh, crisis journal from I think it was 2006 or seven, something along those lines, uh, specifically talking about uh, preparations for pandemics. So like Jeff was saying, we, this is something that we've known about uh, in, in theory, right. And in, in practice um, for, for years. And, and so we need to go uh, forward on that. Um, Jeff, since you are the disaster of politics, right? That's one of Jeff's uh, shows that he has. It's a great podcast, by the way, if you guys are interested. Um, so Julie asked, when there's a disconnect between state and county and city, um, how do communities know who to trust? And all of us, I think we should go around the horn on this one as well. We'll start with Jeff, though. And as Rodrigo brought out, um, the case of the Orange County beaches where 70,000 people hit the beaches um, last weekend. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that that's a great question. So we've done some uh, polling on this in the past in terms of uh, trust when it comes to disasters, not specific to COVID or pandemics. Um, and we do find that while distrust has been on an increasing trend, trust is dramatically higher in local government than the federal government. And of course, that makes sense, right? People live in communities, not in uh, congressional media hearings and things like that. Uh, it's much closer to the day to day. And so I think that, uh, you know, when we look at that, it's also why it's really important that that there's strong relationships and strong collaboration between local, state, and federal. Um, but in general, as a general trend, people tend to look to community leaders more uh, than national leaders, although national leaders help to set the tone and help to frame things. And obviously in a highly politicized environment, that's having some of the, the detrimental effects that we're seeing today. I would say in addition to that though, so um, you know, the um, there, there's local leadership, local health, and, and of course that's the most relevant context. Um, you know, you can have the same information from the CDC in rural Kansas as you do in lower Manhattan. Um, and the New York City Department of Health is where you wanna to go to if you're in lower Manhattan. And, uh, oh, I could have used Manhattan, Kansas as the analogy. That would have worked so well. Oh, it wasn't live. We'd have to cut that. Anyway, <laughs> but, the, uh, um, but, but you know what I'm saying, right? There, there's like the broader trends and then there, there's what's locally relevant and the local risk factors. Not unlike weather, right? Where you have the National Weather Service, but the local bureaus can actually take in those local conditions that have a big effect on, on how things actually play out. But I would also say that, that um, people get their information from a variety of sources. It's not as important to me who they get it from as long as they're getting it from someone who's basing it on the science and based on the evidence. So what I mean by that is that a lot of people go look to the faith-based community um, for, for trust. Some people want to see someone in a lab coat. Some people want to see an academic like me for reasons that I don't fully understand. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to hear from their emergency manager. Um, the fact is, is that throughout the community, there's no single person listening and they're all hearing it from different folks. Some want to hear it from their company. Some want to hear it through family and friends. So I would say um, really starting locally and expanding out from there. Um, and, um, you know, you really can't over communicate. And I think engaging other partners in the community to carry that message uh, is very, very important because not everyone. And in fact, we know a good proportion of folks, um, even though trust is higher at the local level, um, there's still a significant gap between all of the people in the community and the people who, who tend to trust um, in their community leadership. Sure. Kyle, I want to I want to piggyback on this one for you, and and then Rodrigo, I'd like you to take it after Kyle, um, including the politics part of it, right? And then what steps can we take um, in our communities to promote uh, continued buy-in with the general public and the continued social distancing or safe at home orders that have helped flatten the curve? That's from Christine Hall um, asking that question. Yeah, well, first I'd like to say, I think catastrophic disasters uh, for the past, let's say, well, post-Katrina, we've had quite a few in the 17, 18 timeframe, very complex events. I think that those have shown repeatedly that the best response comes when all arms of the operation are working as one. And I think that's what we strive for as professionals and can, should continue to do. Um, but the points are, are very well taken. And I think especially if you look at a post-disaster uh, post environment. You start looking at um, where we are, say, right now in our extended response and envisioning what a recovery looks like, bringing together stakeholders for a unified vision uh, is critical. And so, you know, to the question, I think that it's more important uh, now than ever to, uh, to bring together your state, local, key stakeholders from the community to all collaborate and identify 
what this extended response looks like, both from the emergency management perspective, but more importantly, from the community perspective and get that buy-in. And we've seen this very successfully implemented in, in a lot of communities at this point in time. They're, they're taking an assessment of the needs of the community, the impact the community mitigation measures have had on, on livelihoods, well-being, as well as the health and medical toll. They're assessing that, they're assessing risk in the context of their organization. Uh, they're outlining a, a vision for what returning to some semblance of normal looks like to them. And then they're collaborating that and coming to a common vision. And, I think this is absolutely the best practice uh, and it's the first step. And, and I think beyond this step comes, you know, then beginning to marry up these needs and this vision of, of a recovery with the available resources that are pouring into the communities from a variety of different measures. You know, in a post-disaster environment, there are 20 different federal agencies managing 90 different programs. And so what we're seeing right now with COVID is that uh, the level of resources and the complexity is multiplied and so having those stakeholders come together, collaborate, envision that, that post-disaster environment, I think is, is essential to build trust, but also to maximize the resources of, uh, that are pouring into the community and that will help alleviate the challenges. Rodrigo. Yeah, it's, so it's interesting. So I'm kind of moving the scale in the opposite direction, right? So, so in, this, in this case, if we're talking about local leadership, and I think that that's important, one of the interesting things about COVID-19 is that it's going to offer a fantastic example of case study analysis for emergency response leadership for years to come. Many, many PhD dissertations are going to be written in this regard. And we've seen the leadership of, person, of individuals like uh, Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern, a name that I didn't know before this event in New Zealand, uh, who is regarded as a fantastic leader that did a great response, or Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, who saw an incredible increase in the level of respect and support uh, uh, from their population, even though uh, she was being seen as a lame duck before uh, the event. So one of the things that we are seeing is that as we know in many other places, leadership matters and a crisis like this one bring opportunities for people to excel in things that, and the opposite is also true. So surprisingly, the world here, has, the world has been looking for information and analysis and because these responses happen at the nation state level, but the pandemic happens at the global scale, we're basically gifted with the opportunity to analyze multiple responses of laboratories of policy and learn from that. So at the same time that we're looking for trust at the local level, and I think that is completely true, there is also a quest of leadership in the free world, if you will, that is taking place and, and, and uh, we'll see what ends up happening. I, I just wanted to add in really quickly too, you know, I think that these are all really, really great points and, and just getting back to kind of the political structures that, you know, uh, the U.S. is a federalist democracy, right? It's based more on state rights than federal federal rights. And so, um, so a lot of these emergency management systems are designed around getting the states what they need and then getting out of the way. You have to be invited in. Uh, pandemics are, are kind of the opposite of that. Um, and, and I actually appreciate Kyle's point, you know, that there are, uh, you know, as many as 90 programs that work across 20 agencies. I actually wrote 
an op-ed a couple of months ago where I argued that that's about 15 agencies and 80 programs too many. Um, no disrespect for anyone doing it, right? And, and I want to be very clear, everyone in the field, everyone within these agencies and even the leadership of these agencies, they're working with the legislated hand that they've been given. They don't have the ability to change this. So this is where we really do need a wholesale look at, at what it's not a one size fits all pandemics are very different the the pandemics team that we heard a lot about the obama administration created at the national security council um, was a band-aid it was a way to coordinate across these authorities because it wasn't clear which authorities were the right ones. The fact that, that President Trump has had to implement the Stafford Act across all 50 states, the National um, the um, Emergencies Act, the uh, Defense uh, Production Act, all of these different acts is because there is no clear and cohesive. They all have overlapping authorities and gaps in between them. Yeah. Um, so I would say too that, that as we dig a little bit deeper, there is an underpinning um, legislated um, process that actually drives and directs responses a certain way, whether or not the people in the ground ultimately think that that's the best way to do it or not. And so I think that that's a, a very important thing, not only with pandemics, but as we look at more complex disasters, simultaneous disasters, increased extreme events from climate change, et cetera, et cetera, um, that uh, reworking these to be more cohesive, more collaborative, and more flexible for the professionals um, in the field to implement these responses uh, will be part of uh, not only this, but the way we continue going down the 21st century and, and organizing ourselves for disasters. So we're getting close to the end here. Um, if you guys mind sticking over a little bit, we can we can go over. But if you guys have to go, I understand. But I think the conversation is going really well. I want to mash a couple of questions together. And, and everybody who's been asking questions, thank you so much. And I don't mean to – I don't want to – so Jim Wilson, Brent Blazer, um, and then um, Mark uh, Schiffer all kind of ask questions in a similar um, – similar fashion. And it kind of goes back again to, to trust. And I want to take a little bit of each of these questions. So Jim asks about the idea of, of vaccine and normally takes, he says about four years, give or take to develop a, a proper vaccine. I know that we're looking at uh, from last I read, it was, they're kind of pushing on 18 months possible for a vaccine for this. Um, you know, I know they're working hard, but the question comes in here is the trust between public health, um, has been compromised, according to you know, in his opinion, and um, the plans that do not acknowledge the reality, the the realities of the risk, um, is, is in that trust gap there. Um, you know, how do how do we address that? And I want to kind of go back up to Brent on the same note that he's talking about the possibility of lab support and processing um, is lacking, uh, especially in the rural areas. You know, and then what point do um, we start encouraging tolerance and risk within society. So I think on both sides of that with, with Jim and, and Brent, it's, it's the asking about where are we in the testing process and how do we know what to trust? If we say normally if the you know, FDA takes four years to, to approve a vaccine, but we're going to do it in less than, you know, 12 months or whatever, is it trustworthy? You know, do we have actual trials on this? Do we know if it works or are we, are we just putting it out there uh, with an idea that's, I don't want to say it's placebo, but something may or may not work and see what the herd, um, you know, does. Um, yeah. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of the vaccine question and a lot of these, um, and and um, uh, I think there was another question there in terms of looking at different risk groups and things like that. So that that's all based on, um, you know, a lot of that's going to come out in the data and the clinical trials that are being done going forward. 
Um, now, there are two things that are happening that's accelerating that. that, that and, and I will say that these are actually part of the pandemic plans. These are some of the things that are going well. Um, you're right, it normally takes four or five, sometimes decades, sometimes never to get to a vaccine. And that has to do with the technology available and the biology of the, the viruses themselves. Um, the difference here is that a lot of the barriers to collaboration have been removed. A lot of emergency funding has been put in. A lot of things that normally would not be allowable under antitrust regulations, collaboration across different pharmaceutical groups, um, and a simple business competition between pharmaceutical groups that would normally not be allowed is suddenly allowed. So that is why the timeline is so different in blue sky to gray sky times, because in these emergencies, you do get collaboration, you get willingness to collaborate, and you also get removal of the barriers to collaborate. So normally the whole world isn't working on um, the same vaccine uh, the way that they are now. Uh, so, so that's why you see some of these timelines moving up. That being said, um, that you're still at the mercy of the biology of the organism. Um, and so that's why there, you know, folks like myself always hedge when we say 12 to 18 months is a best case scenario. And that's very much a best case scenario. There are some interesting results early on, a lot of things in the pipeline, but it's a long way to go to get there. Um, there are a few treatments a little further along showing a little more promise, but again, it's still not at scale and not at market and things like that. Understanding these risk groups is really important because vaccines and, and pharmaceuticals as they become available are gonna be limited and their quantity and you want the highest risk groups, the ones that are most likely to end up in the healthcare system or in the morgue as a result of this disease. That's, that's where you start and work backwards from there. Um, there's actually quite a bit of data in terms of identifying comorbidities. There's still a lot of uncertainty around the edges, but there's a fairly clear picture. People who are older, people who have other chronic diseases, otherwise immune compromised, things like that. Um, but I think the thing is, and, and this gets to both trust in public health as well as other fields, uh, whether it's climate science, whether it's um, uh, is that it is, is that the currency is uncertainty. Everything is uncertainty. Everything, it's not a deterministic world. It's not a logistics model with an algorithm that says if this, then that. Everything is nuance. Um, every individual has a different biology. Every environment interacts, has different interactions between people and the spread of disease, which means there are exceptions to everything. And that is incredibly difficult to communicate um, when we have a vocabulary of certainty and sound bites and tweets and things like that, it just doesn't lend itself to that. So public health has been struggling with this in its entire existence. Um, but I do think that there are some mechanisms out there for managing uncertainty, for communicating uncertainty. Um, and I appreciate, um, Todd, you and your team for doing these webinars, because I think this gives us the breathing room to really talk through a lot of that, rather than restricting us to, uh, to very rapid sound bites that, um, uh, that are really um, antagonistic to this idea of communicating yeah. and talking through the uncertainty. So thank you for that. Kyle, Mark asked a question, do you anticipate state level mandates for PPE and hand sanitizer in buildings? Um, you know, changes like that, like we saw um, after 9-11 with security in buildings. And then, you know, maybe even keeping that six foot circle that's painted on some sidewalks nowadays uh, for social distancing, for churches and businesses and schools and et cetera. Yeah, I think we're already seeing some of those mitigation measures being put in place. And uh, I anticipate that that trend will continue. I think that the conversation we're having today is being repeated uh, across the nation as each individual uh, who's charged with this responsibility is assessing risk and trying to determine what that balance looks like to get the community back to normal and as much as is possible while still protecting the public's health. And 
so I do think that you're going to see some very tactical measures such as uh, were suggested. Uh, there are others that are being implemented. We see more robust cleaning even being implemented in, in things like processing plants or corporate offices. We see uh, shifting work schedules. We're seeing reevaluations of the open work environment. So I do think that there are changes in our behavior and the way that we've interacted in the past that are likely to come. Uh, I think they'll, they'll come in waves. I think we're going to see some implemented now and then some that are more sustainable over time. And, uh, you know, along with this, I, I think one of the most interesting conversations right now is the conversation around technology and future of mitigation. And you see this, um, you know, with use of smartphones as potential uh, mechanism of, of contact tracing and, and whether that's something that the general public would be open to. I think something like 80% of U.S. Uh, population, hat, adult population has a smartphone. Um, but only 50% say they would accept uh, some sort of contact tracing app. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of questions like this that I think we're going to have to ask ourselves. And it just goes back to the top of the discussion where I think the right mindset here is an extended response. To Jeff's point, uh, we don't exactly know when the vaccine or if the vaccine will occur. I think that's a nice end zone to put out there in the future. But the reality is we may need to be in an environment of heightened uh, mitigation for quite some time. And I think that is really different from any other hazard that we commonly encounter and something that it's taking time, truthfully, for all of us to process, internalize, and to figure out the way forward. Rodrigo, this is a good question for you since you uh, have your pulse on the on the world pretty much. When were we really aware of this um, event happening in Wuhan? Um, they're asking for a specific date, but I'm not going to hold you to a date. Um, and then when, did, and, and then we have focused on the, on the gaps of preparedness, but however, um, was there a gap in the warning system? That's a good question, actually. Was there a gap in, in, in that warning um, system as well? Well, at, at the personal level, I'll give you a personal answer, but that's because I'm in this world. I told you that my daughter was born in November and my uh, in-laws and my parents don't know her. Right. So by December, I was already worried about it. And I asked my folks not to travel. Uh, the real intake, I, 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 as I saw the question, I went and I checked. So Google, Google Trends has a, an increase in the mention of Ruan uh, by January. Right. So by January, it was really in the radar of everybody, uh, although, although you already had news coming uh, in December. Right. So that, that, that should have been a, a, a good early warning system if we had one in place. Uh, the issue here is the issue of weak signals, right? And this is a, a, an issue that we often confront in not only pandemics, but in general homeland security, right? Uh, the weak signals come uh, embedded in a lot of other noise. There are many other issues, many other threats that you have to mitigate, that you have to deal with, uh, and your li limited resources have to be allocated in a certain way. And uh, it's not enough to have a signal. We have a signal of threats that comes uh, to us all the time. It's, about the signal, the level of reliability, and the moment to act, right? Any early warning system has to give you those three, uh, three elements. We had good information. Some of that information uh, could have probably, uh, we could have been a South Korea in the sense that we would have been able to ask, uh, to act a lot more aggressively early on. Uh, we didn't, right? And, and that, that's going to be part of it, that uh, COVID-19 commission that we probably will have at one point. It's probably too early. 
but on the other hand, uh, this is the, the typical conflict of, of, of anybody dealing with secure, domestic security. Uh, why didn't you connect the dots? Uh, that's a terrible metaphor. These are not dots to be connected. Uh, this is a bunch of noise, data points all over the place that you have to do now. That said, we could have and we should have, and this is, as, as we, it was already mentioned before, this is something that could have been prevented. There's uh, uh, public voices, there's good research, some of it coming from CHDS about uh, uh, how could we have better uh, 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 monitoring systems for uh, uh, pandemics and for reaction to pandemics uh, that could have been in place. I think that the, I believe it was the Atlantic had this very, very uh, provocative headline at one point, the uh, post 9-11 era is over. Uh, I do think that a lot of people uh, who used to think of threats from the point of view of terrorism are reevaluating some of our uh, uh, personal risk management. And if we're afraid of the right things and that, that TED talk by Bill Gates has been uh, uh, watched more these last two months than all the time that had been in, in the TED talk website since 2015. So uh, we will probably see a multiple forms of the question you just asked. Uh, to think about what should be the form that will make probably uh, public health experts happier that more attention is being paid uh, to the challenges they are helping us confront. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We are talking about this the other day with the fact that um, we tend to be reactive as proactive we try to be as emergency management. Um, of course, we're, we're always pushed by the elected officials. We tend to be reactive. So we were after post, after 9-11, we were very much focused on terrorism. After Katrina, we really went back to the all hazards approach um, and, uh, and tried to keep it in charge of that. After Sandy, we really were working on global warming and, and storms. Um, and it seems like after this, we're going to be really focusing on, on pandemic again. And, and it seems to be that we really, and on the academic side of things, I know that we're there and we discuss these things amongst ourselves. Um, it's just the idea of getting this information out to the public for them to be as aware of the situations that we are. But like Jeffrey was saying earlier, it's, we're, we're a bunch of eggheads sometimes. We sit around and talk about these things and yes, we might know, um, but it's hard to really uh, project that message when you're fighting with other things out there that are more fun like Survivor or The Voice yeah. or whatever. But, and I, I would just add too, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, life is much more transactional than we like to think. And, you know, it's the, uh, I, I don't think we've done a great job. And when I say we all, I also count myself in academia of really articulating the value of resilience. So um, I know that through the National Building Institute, uh, the um, our Institute of Buildings, but that FEMA number $1 in mitigation, save $6 in response and recovery. But that's a very specific number for a very specific kind of transaction. When you have developers building in a floodplain and they're going to get paid when they're done building. That's a very different transaction with different trade-offs. And in this case, when we're talking about, hey, it's great. It's so much cheaper to have a consolidated supply chain where we process 5% of the country's pork products in one plant. Let's do that. We don't factor in the disruption if there's an outbreak of COVID-19. Um, and the same thing with these surveillance systems. That's the real thing too, is that all of this stuff costs money. 
And we can bang our heads against the wall saying that the sky is falling and we'll be dead by Tuesday if we don't make this investment by Saturday. Uh, but the reality is, is that we're in a world of, of limited resources. And I think that one of the most important things that is going to come out of this is the ability to come up with that value proposition that's more meaningful to individuals and to businesses at on the terms of the transactions that they're engaged in every day. I think people get the threat. I think the people get that there's so many bad things out there that could happen. Um, and, and so, and we got to get somewhere between here uh, down to here to actually affect those individual behaviors, those organizational behaviors um, that, that truly make this an investment that can be quantified rather than just an abstract idea that we can all agree on over a beer and then go back to doing things the way that we normally do. Right. Kyle, this is, I think you should handle this question. And I, Tim, I've been trying to kind of work this into the conversation, but I think this is a good spot for it. And he goes into the idea of volunteerism and that there's thousands of volunteers out there doing various different things all over the course. And um, talks about the fact that it's uh, pro bono and um, which is part of the volunteers portion of it. And, but how do we, and this is the question he has, how do we approach these frontline nonprofits with the pro, pro bono resources in a way that it's helpful and respectful? Um, and, and how do we get in front of the right people um, on their teams? How do we engage nonprofit organizations and how do we keep them safe? Yeah, I, well, I think there's some uh, fairly robust systems and structures in place right now that are nonprofits, essentially team, a team of teams, you know, a non-for-profit that's charged with and facilitating bringing together various non-for-profits for the purposes of disaster response. So uh, the VOAD is, an, you know, National VOAD is an example of that. Um, but I think it's incumbent, as we talked a lot about the decentralized nature of emergency management in this country, and I think it's incumbent on each each entity who's engaged in response to ask themselves that question. Because we're in a time of great need. Uh, I don't think anyone would say that the need isn't exceeding the resources in some way. And likely there is an opportunity to engage the community in that discussion uh, in meeting that need. I mean, the, the, the evolution of uh, the approach around face coverings as an example is a great example of how the public can rally to support an area where there's great deficit. And as I mentioned earlier in the call, you know, contact tracing, we're now starting to see out of New York, massive uh, operation, and that's both paid and unpaid uh, engagements and uh, food bank operations, similar. I know many hospitals are taking on volunteers for a variety of efforts. So I think it's, it's, it's recognized generally in the context of uh, COVID-19 that this has value and I expect, especially as fatigue continues to set in over this extended response period, that the importance of engaging the community directly is just gonna, it's gonna become more and more pronounced. I think the last thing I'll say is I think there are a tremendous number of success stories in counties all over the country where they've formed volunteer councils, advisory boards, bringing in key stakeholders from their local environment uh, to actively solicit their input in the decision process. And I think this is a, a great thing. Um, and then if you don't mind, I just want to comment on, on Jeff's last uh, point regarding, you know, resilience. And I think that, that something has changed in the psychology. Uh, maybe I'm optimistic, maybe I'm not, but I think we have to look back at the past decade, 9-11, the great financial crisis, uh, you have the string of disasters in 2017 and 18. 
there is more awareness of vulnerability. And I think that I see the discourse changing uh, as this, you know, $2 trillion makes its way across the nation as part of the CARES Act. You have infrastructure providers, for instance, receiving large sums of money. And they're not just talking about meeting the immediate need, the liquidity and credit issues. They're talking about how to build stronger and how to reduce the impact of future incidents. I think this is a positive direction. And, uh, and so while there's always improvements to be made, I, I think we've accomplished a great deal with the professionalization of emergency management over the past 10 years. Absolutely. So John Campbell asked two questions and I, I kind of want to mash these together as well. And, and one is, is um, how do we identify people that are most drastically at risk of just, you know, just uh, with age or compromised immunity systems or, 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 and that along the lines. Um, and is it practical and will it make a difference? And then he, <laughs> then he asked the question, I'm kind of laughing because I love the way he framed it. He goes, not to be fatalistic, but is it possible for the situation to be worse than we already have? If it's all right, I'll, I'll start with the, um, that. So, so absolutely, you know, um, through the clinical data, I think there's a pretty clear picture emerging of kind of the most at-risk folks. Um, and uh, actually, from a public health response perspective, that's very, very important because as we talked about before, when vaccines and pharmaceuticals if and when they start to become available, they're gonna to start to come available in a trickle, not in a flood. And the people most at risk need to be first in line. Um, and they're most at risk either for, for physiological conditions, age, co uh, um, um, uh, chronic diseases, things like that, um, or because of the nature of their job, frontline healthcare workers, things like that. Um, so I think that it is very, very important. But I would also say it's very important in terms of, and we're already seeing this adjusted, right? We're seeing uh, supermarkets opening early for and only allowing people over 65 or people at high risk immune compromise. So to try to create safer ways to engage with those necessary resources for people who are at higher risk. So if we're looking at, at keeping the morbidity and mortality rate as low as possible, this is absolutely essential information. And like I said, I, I think we're, we're hearing a few anomalies here and there. There are some things around the edges where we're not totally clear about risk, but by and large, this is one of the few things that has emerged and has a pretty clear picture on. Um, to the question on can this be worse? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, the answer, uh, so the, um, uh, this, um, you know, we're looking at fatality rates right now in the neighborhood of three, three and a half based on confirmed cases. But once you factor in asymptomatic carriers, I think some of the latest modeling puts it at about 0.6%. And that's probably about where, um, I, I suspect that that's probably true. Um, now, what does that mean? That that's uh, 0.6 in the United States is still 2.1 million deaths. Um, so that's not a small number. Seasonal flu is usually less than 0.1, give or take. Um, so, um, so yes, it can be a lot worse. It has been a lot worse in the past. I would say, too, that if the uh, healthcare system is allowed to be overrun because of lack of ventilators, because of too many people sick, because of relaxing social distancing too early, that fatality rate is going to go up a lot higher, and you're going to have a lot more indirect deaths from people who can't access care. My biggest concern over the next six months is actually having a major hurricane at the same time of COVID-19 transmission. It's going to amplify COVID-19 transmission and it's going to have limited resources and the ability to respond. I have the utmost respect and faith in the responders and in the emergency management community of rising to this occasion and doing the absolute best job that they can. Um, it's just there's only you can only stretch resources so far. You can only stretch people so far. Um, so I think that um, 
not only can this be worse, and I would actually say a little bit of a silver lining, although many of us will argue that uh, the social distancing was implemented late, it was implemented relatively early compared to when I thought elected officials were going to be willing to do this. A lot of places did it with very few cases that undoubtedly saved lives, it undoubtedly is buying us time, and has kept highly affected healthcare systems from being overrun by having resources available to them that can now be moved to other parts of the country. Um, so it can always be worse, but, um, but there are positive steps. And although I've been somewhat negative, I should say that there are a lot of plans and procedures and things in place that have made this better than it could have been um, and have put us in a place where we have, um, uh, you know, we will get through this much more intact than had we have waited for the healthcare system to be overrun, had we have waited much longer for, for much more widespread, uh, widespread outbreak. But um, thank you for those, those really good questions. I'll, I'll, I'll add just something to both very rapidly. One is that uh, on top of all the comorbidity factors that uh, Jeffrey already talked about, there, there is an issue here that is uh, regarding who's at risk and, and uh, uh, virus and bacteria are social animals, right? So like they, they propagate through society's behaviors. And so some elements are individual and those goes to your own personal health and personal habits and uh, 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 preconditions, but the other is social environment, right? And we've seen this one, it shouldn't be a surprise. So places that have multi-generational households, right? Where the kid will go to daycare, uh, become a silent, uh, silent carrier with, uh, who will be fully asymptomatic or, or with, uh, and then comes and hugs grandpa. And, and, and grandpa dies, right? So, so social environments, as much as individual, is playing a big role into who is at risk, right? And um, the wealth gap, right, is there. If you are wealthy and you can socially isolate and you can order your stuff from Instacart and you can work from home, so you have the benefit of being part of the good jobs economy, right, where you, 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 you can uh, keep working, you have not been financially impacted. It's very different to the person who has to put himself or herself out, sadly. Uh, we have seen these in first responders, right? So or first responders right at the line of duty are being uh, statistically uh, uh, impacted at a higher rates than the general population because their level of, uh, of uh, exposure. So it's not only their health, uh, it's also lifestyle choices that we make in this case as heroic as, 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 as some of our first responders are. For the second one, you know, it can always be worse, right? So that's, that's, that's the reality. Right. And right. Jeffrey mentioned the, 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 the non-man-made part of this, which is a hurricane, uh, uh, an earthquake response in the middle of, of, of all this. Uh, I, 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 I worry both about the, the, the man-made response, so the weaponization, and I'm not talking about anything fancy. We, we, we've seen already cases of people infected with COVID-19 that will go and cough on purpose on people, right? So, so um, and the other part is, of course, uh, secondary attacks. So people taking advantage of this situation to get us in a vulnerable position to do something else, right? So mm -hmm. we, we are, this is not the worst it could be. I'm not even opening the kind of worms of biotech engineering that remains at the realm of science fiction at this point. But it certainly is, this is the dress rehearsal of what could be a more lethal uh, uh, pathogen uh, if uh, human ingenuity would be uh, part of the equation. And, you know, I, I forgot to mention before, too, and I, I'm actually ashamed that I forgot to mention, but um, disparities in recovery and disparities of the impact. So COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color. 
as well as communities in poverty. Um, and I should say too that, that, that it's unfortunately still a very real truth that emergency management is not representative of the nation as a whole. And I know that a lot of work is being done to address that. And I know, and all of the individuals in emergency management are doing everything they can to, to inform the community and drag them in. So I, I wanna be very clear, I'm not being critical of anyone in this role right now. Um, but according to the American Community Survey, 90% of emergency management directors are white, 75% are male. Um, and so, uh, so, so there are perspectives that are just inherently lacking at the table that, again, everyone is working to correct either through processes, through bringing more folks in, but it's really, really important to note that some of the latest research coming out, um, both for COVID-19, is seeing a very disproportionate impact on communities of color and communities of color and communities in poverty tend to see the inequalities increase as a result of uh, assistance programs coming in, the complexity of the applications process, things like that, and the access to the resources to be able to access those programs tends to favor the wealthy um, over those who are actually most in need. So these are structural issues. Uh, and again, for folks in the field, folks coordinating this, I know that, that they know this better than me. They're struggling with this every day on how to best serve their community. But we have a very, very uneven ability to reach people in this country, it's a structural issue that, that we still haven't uh, uh, fully figured out. And so I should mention that, that there are social determinants of, of health, there are social determinants of vulnerability to this pandemic and other disasters. Absolutely. A um, couple of questions here, we're, and we're, we're, realistically, we're, we're way over, but I'm glad you guys are sticking with this. Um, Tiffany asked a question regarding, uh, besides support, food support and PPE, um, and I think this is more for Kyle, um, you know, throughout this recovery, what other avenues are we looking in at emergency management? Where, where else are we needed? Um, I guess is really the way the question is, is formed. Well, and I think this relates directly to the, the previous line of thought. In many ways, uh, COVID-19 has accelerated trends that were already in place in emergency management. Uh, prior to COVID-19, we were already talking more and more about public-private partnerships and the value the private sector brings to response operations and critical supplies. We met emergency managers across the nation who are more focused on vulnerable populations, homelessness, than they were on your more traditional Stafford Act type disaster. Uh, we have aging infrastructures and populations. We're addressing the digital divide. The, the conversations around contact trace, they're only highlighting the the challenge, the digital divide, and that relates directly to our most vulnerable populations. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the short answer is they are vast. Uh, I think as you begin to dabble in this idea of co-response, a hurricane uh, impacting the continental United States at the same time we're addressing pandemic, where there's a high propensity of, er uh, of uh, elderly populations that live in coastal areas. Uh, there are half a million homeless individuals that are at risk. And so, you know, you, you begin to extract all of these different layers. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it causes some self-reflection within the discipline. I think that we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to be good at? And what are the needs of the community? And not necessarily cling to uh, traditional definitions of what emergency management was, uh, because I think that what we are really good at is bringing together stakeholders on highly contentious issues and facilitating positive outcomes. And I think as you look at the way the needs of our communities are evolving uh, and seeing that accelerated through this current crisis, 
uh, the need is great for those types of decision makers and problem solvers in, in all levels of government, public and private sectors. Do you think, and this is, anybody can grab this one. Um, do you think that the COVID crisis is going to uh, change the way we do healthcare in the United States? I think it should. I don't think it's going to. Um, I mean, these are deep, deep questions in terms of access to healthcare. I mean, look, the bottom line is having a population that's more covered means that you're building the infrastructure to cover more people and more people are more likely to seek treatment and get access earlier on in the disease process. Um, this is something um, that's been known for a while. I've argued uh, along with others that, you know, having, um, uh, and look, I, I'm, I'm open to a range of possibilities for universal coverage, private sector solution, you know, whatever gets the job done. And I think that there's middle ground to kind of get this done, but it is such a polarizing topic. It's such a hot topic um, politically. Um, and it really does get into what is the role of the federal government? How does that compare with state governments? Things like that. I, I would like to think that there would be adjustments to this. We're certainly seeing temporary adjustments in terms of federal coverage for testing and treatments related to COVID and things like that, that were kind of shoehorned into the stimulus bill, but they're temporary um, because they're in a stimulus bill. Um, and I think we saw how polarizing and how difficult wholesale change to the healthcare system has been and has been over the last century to try and create uh, broader healthcare coverage. So um, yeah, I certainly think that there's gonna be a lot more data for the argument on why it's so important, but um, I'm not, yeah, I'm trying to be optimistic. I really am. Right. I, I, do, I do think it will change healthcare preparedness planning. I think the assumptions we made about wholesale cancellation of elective surgeries and procedures as the sort of first step in surge capacity planning uh, has been significantly undermined over what we've learned over the past few months. And uh, the system has vulnerabilities and it requires cash flow and uh, the implications of, of canceling elective surgeries are only beginning to be felt now. It doesn't make sense to be in the middle of a health and medical emergency and be furloughing nurses and doctors. Right. I, I should add too, I think it's going to accelerate some trends that were in place. Telehealth, it's certainly accelerating right. telehealth. It's certainly accelerating sort of pushing a lot of treatments and things outside the hospital in the communities, uh, centers and things like that. So uh, it, it'll certainly have a, a dramatic effect on the way we deliver healthcare, um, but in terms of coverage and structurally. Yeah, I don't think it'll change. Yeah, I don't know about coverage. I, I agree with you, but I, I would say that the change to telemedicine that actually goes to another question that was on the on the on the uh, question and answer section. It's not only it's, it, it, I, telemedicine has has already increased dramatically. It's uh, in in its use right now. Uh, most of the time, most of the studies, the, la the last one I read before this was from 2018, show high levels of satisfaction from people who use telemedicine, but very few people had used it before. Uh, and this is forcing people to use it and they are testing it. And uh, many people might like it and might decide that this is a more convenient way of getting uh, healthcare that actually goes to some of the issues that were discussed before, like coverage in rural areas. It's easier to give access to people, uh, uh, to a doctor or a nurse practitioner, if that happens through a Zoom conference, the way we're having right now, uh, with electronic uh, uh, prescriptions can be sent directly to your pharmacy of choice, and you didn't have to vis visit the emergency room or the uh, 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 urgent care. Uh, 
Um, of course, that doesn't work for broken bones or, or many of the other issues, but at least for the, the things that 80% of the people need from their general practice doctor, uh, it's a great example that now is being pushed. Digital transformation is going to be one of those cases. Uh, there was a question here regarding governments, right? Governments uh, who were not used to or were reluctant to move to digital processes are now doing it. Uh, in many ways, uh, people are liking the kind of service that they're getting from their government entities through uh, digital services. Um, and I think that these are going to be some of those potentially long-lasting transformations, both in medicine, but also in government services uh, that will come from the post-COVID-19 era, right? We, we, we are seeing a, a dramatic increase in the amount of books being published uh, right now, republished re on remote and telework, uh, because everybody's scrambling to learn how to do this right. Uh, and in that regard, healthcare, it's probably not going to be different. And I can tell you personally, I've been discussing with three startups uh, who are all of them uh, solely uh, 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 receiving more phone calls from venture capitalists the last three months that do healthcare issues than in the last three years, right? So, right. so there, is, there is a new interest in how do we deliver care. There also will be a more interest in how do we deliver care for everybody, right? Now we have Medicare for all who have COVID-19. Right, so that's kind of what the rules are right now. We're trying to make sure that anybody who has COVID, that we're trying to make sure that if you have COVID-19, you will have paid leave, right? So you mm -hmm. don't have to go to work and infect everybody as you're doing it, right? So the bigger questions of healthcare uh, are now kind of concentrated in our COVID-19 response. Yeah, and last question, and uh, so from, from Jim Wilson, and we're specifically talking about, well, kind of going there with a little bit of air traffic and stuff going on and, and how people are moving around and departure uh, to and from places prior to the, uh, to the warning. And I guess kind of looking at a statement and pulling a question out of here is compared to when the dates of the information came available to the public and, and maybe even to um, the president or if it was briefed to the president or to our elected officials, um, can, can we do something different as far as moving people around the globe and kind of grabbing the question, Jim, if I'm not answering the, if I'm not asking the question, right, uh, please, please chime in. But that's kind of what I got out of what your statement was there. Uh, please, so go ahead. No, I, I think this popped up too, when we were talking about detection, early detection and when, when people were aware of it as well too. But I think that, I mean, I think that that's a good point where there were different timelines where information was being responded to differently and actually setting up global surveillance and global biosurveillance has been, in some ways there have been a lot of uh, advances with the promulgation of international health regulations to report this stuff. We knew there was something going on in China. We knew there was a novel coronavirus that was looking pretty bad. Uh, pulled out the SARS playbook because uh, um, and it just didn't behave the same way as SARS. It was a lot more infectious than SARS. Um, I, I think it does show that we do have a very um, um, compartmented nature to the way we function as a society. Some groups were quicker to step up than others. Uh, in some cases, maybe that was appropriate. In other cases, maybe it wasn't. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, when it gets into kind of the disparate national response based on more aggressive local response, um, the questions get very political very fast. And it's going to be, I, I think, 
I don't think there's any way around it to really talk about why the early signals were ignored, why the early briefings were ignored. There's always going to be some lag. Uh, we need to do more to get those systems in place so that there's less lag between the signal and the delivery to decision makers while filtering out the noise of all the other viruses that pop up and go away and never cause a pandemic. Um, but there's some clear rejection of the information that occurred here early on at very high levels that um, is ultimately uh, something that I don't know if it can be resolved by a process. Um, yeah. Yes, and Jeff said uh, we're advocating for the differences in the way we do things with warning, coupled to effective response at the local level. Thank you, yeah. Jeff, for, or, or Jim, for um, yep for clarifying that. So, um, well, we went uh, half an hour over what we originally planned on doing, and I think the conversation was great. And to the panelists, thank you so much for sticking with us. And for those that stayed here to the end, thank you for, for being here. Kyle, would you like to say anything before we let everybody go? Uh, you know, I would just encourage everyone to, to think about this as a marathon, maybe a marathon of sprints, and uh, look at it as a time for innovation and advocacy for what we do. Uh, I think this will likely be a turning point for the profession, much as some of the previous large-scale catastrophes have been. And in that, uh, there's great cost, but there's also always opportunity. And, and I think we all need to contribute to that dialogue as we move forward. Jeffrey. Yeah, I think along the same lines as Kyle, you know, there have been a lot of sort of shifts that have been occurring. I appreciate that he brought up to the, the greater professionalization of the industry and things like that. This is certainly going to accelerate that and certainly recognize that, you know, the, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, fuzzy boundaries around what an emergency manager is and where they're located and who has responsibility. Um, but I will say that, you know, um, a lot of the efforts that have been made, um, are getting us through this uh, better than if we didn't have these investments in pandemic preparedness. And that's great to see. Uh, maybe not all of them and maybe not as many as there should have been. And there'll, there'll be a need to look at all of that. But um, uh, just grateful that for you bringing this conversation together, that people are so engaged in this. And um, I think if there is a silver lining here, it's of all the hard work that, that all of you are doing um, every day in this regard, while also recognizing you're also fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, aunts, uncles, working with your own family and your own family situation. So please, please, uh, you know, take care of yourselves, be safe out there. Um, this is going to, as, uh, as Kyle mentioned, this is going to be a marathon and not a very even marathon at that. Um, but, um, you know, we will see this through to the other side. We will come out the other side of this, no doubt. Um, and uh, in no small part because of the hard work of uh, all of the folks listening here. Awesome. Rodrigo. Uh, very briefly. So uh, this is the, probably the most important global uh, community response since probably World War II, right? So, so this is not a small thing. The good right. news is that for many years we've been uh, thinking or considering the importance of community in building resilience. And community resilience has been one of those focus, uh, focal points of emergency management that we emergency managers understood better uh, than maybe the rest of the people. That problem is gone. At least for the time being, people understand the value of community resilience. And uh, frankly, I've been surprised for, by, by, by the solidarity and response of many. We, we talk a lot about the problems where uh, social distancing doesn't work here or there, but in general, I believe that uh, humanity has come right race to the occasion. And uh, uh, it is today the voice of expert leaders in emergency management, the voice that people wanna hear, right? So, so the, the, the experts are back at least for the time being and people are paying attention, right? And this is a great opportunity 
the eyes of the world are on us and on you and the work that you do. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Please be safe. There is no, no, no response that is worth or if, if, we, if we lose the front, we lose the response, right? So we need to protect our, uh, 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 those of you in the first line of duty because if you collapse, we collapse all with you. So be safe, uh, take good care, and thank you for you and thank you to your families. Kyle, Jeff, and Arrigo, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, congratulations on your book. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a success. Um, and for everybody that came, thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, I want to thank Titan HST for allowing us to have this time. And as we, as you know, uh, Titan HST is a mass notification organization and a telemed um, organization. So they are doing their best to keep people safe um, as well. And thank you for everybody for being here. And we'll see you maybe in uh, June. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> no Great problem. You. Great Bye -bye. to see you, Tom. And Rodrigo, nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please follow us on your favorite podcast player. And thank you to Sitch Radio, the home of the EM Weekly Show. For more information, please go to www.sitchradio.com. See you next week.